Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, if you do have your Bible today, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 3. And we're going to be continuing our look at 1 Peter Today and, and so we'll start today by reading First Peter three, thirteen through seventeen, and we'll be addressing the subject of suffering, which should be no shock when you consider the book of First Peter. Uh, if you if you want to try to summarize the book of First Peter in one word, then a good word to pick is the word suffering, and so suffering is a theme that Peter picks up on over and over and over again. At, uh, in this book itself, and so it comes as no surprise that we're going to be dealing with this subject again today. But uh, why don't we start out by reading First Peter three thirteen through seventeen, and then we'll pray. First Peter three. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than, it, uh, than if that uh, should be God's will than for doing evil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have here today to study your scriptures, Lord. We thank you for the words you've given us, which are life to us, Lord. I pray that you help us today to um, put into practice the things that we learn, Lord, and to understand the, uh, the words that you have given us, Lord, and to uh, protect us from error during our time here today. And so, once again, thank you for the chance we have to gather together as a church to read your words and to read your scriptures and to learn from them. We thank you for all you do. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, if you, if you try to keep up with the news at all, then I'm sure that you are aware over the past few weeks of, of several uh, police shootings that have happened. I'm thinking in particular of a case involving Alton Sterling and Philando uh, Castile. And then if you read the news or listen to the news any more than that, I'm sure that you're aware of the five police officers that were killed in response to this in Dallas as well as I think there's a few other police officers that were killed throughout the country as a result of these situations that that I'm describing. And so as you, you think about these situations, it's important as a church to reflect on these things from the perspective of a Christian worldview. And so we're uh, you, you ought to realize that the Bible has a lot to say about issues that are uh, related to this subject. And it's uh, remarkable that in a passage... Uh, in the passage that we're at today and then last week as well, you have matters that are directly related to some of those issues. And so uh, it's going to be impossible, I think, to say everything that there is to say about uh, subjects that are related related to the ones that we're talking about. I, I don't um, pretend that I'm going to do that today, and I wouldn't even try to do that. Uh, the, the primary intent today is to be faithful uh, to the text that we have here today and to try to point out some things that maybe our culture and society are not paying attention to as it should. And so, uh, uh, But one of the things that's very clear is that as you think through any of those situations, regardless of your view on any, any of those, the, the particulars of any of those situations, we're clearly dealing with examples of suffering. And so this is true across the board. And, and, and it's always good to grieve human suffering. So when you live in a fallen world, you understand that God created man. He made him good. He made him upright. And sin is a consequence of man's rebellion against his maker. And so uh, one of the primary results of the fact that we're sinful, we're sinful people, is the fact that there's suffering in the world. And suffering is viewed as an enemy. And it's right to grieve suffering. So regardless of uh, your perspective on any of these events, it's always good to grieve human suffering, 
But then you, you, it's also true that you grieve suffering in different ways depending on the details of each individual surf, uh, circumstance. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. Now, um, uh, because we're dealing with the subject of suffering today, I want to say a few thoughts about suffering, thoughts which can be drawn out of the passage in hopes that we'll be faithful to the text itself and better understand the world we live in. And so when you think about this subject of suffering, one of the things to realize is that um, as I said, there's different types of suffering. Uh, there's different types of suffering that the Bible addresses. And in particular, when you deal with this passage in 1 Peter 3, uh, 13 through 17, it's dealing with two different types of suffering. Uh, but then it doesn't address every single conceivable type of suffering known to the human condition. Uh, uh, but then it's also helpful for us as as a as a group of people who are trying to think carefully about the Bible and about the world we live in, to think through different categories of suffering. And so what I want to do is I want to say a, a few brief words, and I'm going to try to be as brief as possible, uh, knowing the ground that we have to cover, about different types of suffering that the Bible addresses. So first of all, uh, what, you, what you have is you have suffering as a result of natural evil or impersonal evil. And this is really a terrible category, a terribly named category. I really don't like it, uh, the way that this is worded. Uh, suffering is a result of natural evil or personal evil. Uh, but I, I, it's hard to think of a better way of describing what I'm talking about here. So um, I, in this category of suffering, then you're thinking of things along the lines of death, sickness, weather, um, sunburn, <laughs> You know, and so you can have trivial examples of suffering that's a result of natural evil, or you can have uh, really um, serious examples of suffering that's a result of natural evil. So, just if you think back a few weeks to the uh, child who was um, grabbed by the alligator at the Disney Resort, well, that would be suffering as a result of natural natural evil or impersonal evil. Now, I think it's an unfortunately named category itself. Because there's, there's a sense in which um, it's not as if God just created nature and then let nature run independently of him. No, God's in charge of the weather. He's in charge of death. It's appointed unto man once, in, once to die and after that the judgment. So, I mean, uh, we, we used to speak about a lot of these kind of things as acts of providence. Uh, and still, even when you think about the way that insurance companies work, um, they, they uh, describe like you know, a hurricane as an act of God. Uh, still, so I mean, you know, when you're talking about suffering as a result of natural evil, there is a personal element. God's sovereign; He's in control of the weather. He's in control of the alligator. Uh, you, you know, and so you can't just kind of separate that all out as if that's just something that God grieves and He just uh, He feels real bad f- f- for it and wish He could do something about it, but you know, He can't. So it's not, you know, that's a that's the danger of the category itself. But I think you understand what I'm saying. There is a category of things called. Uh, natural evil or that are more impersonal in nature. So an alligator is not a person. <laughs> uh, but then um, there is suffering that results from uh, these types of things. Uh, but then there's also suffering that's a result of sinful oppression. So think about that category for a minute. Suffering that's a result of sinful oppression. Now, um, a mugger. Uh, a situation about a mugger would maybe fall into this sort of category. So if you think about a mugger uh, who wants to steal your wallet, it really doesn't matter who you are. I mean, you just happen to be there, so to speak. Uh, what you have is a person who's going to sinfully oppress you, but there's really no catalyst there. It's not as if he, you know, you you even know who they are. They just You just happen to be the one who's there at that time who probably has a wallet who they want to take. And so there's a way that you can suffer from the sinful choices of others that's completely, I mean, for the most part, unrelated to your own actions at that point. And so this may be, uh, uh, there's suffering that results from that. Uh, But then there's also suffering that is a result of sinful choices or or, uh, sinful and or foolish choices. So sometimes the suffering that you experience is just, result of living in a fallen world, you know, uh, with all that comes along with that, the pain and suffering that comes along with that. Sometimes it's a result of the sinful oppression of others. So that could be intentional and unintentional. Uh, but then sometimes it's you, you suffer because you make stupid choices, okay? And so uh, sinful, foolish, stupid choices, you can suffer because of that. Uh, but then there's also a fourth category to consider that, 
is also germane to the passage today, and that's the category of suffering for righteousness' sake. And so what, what you really, um, you, you know, it, in just distinguishing that from other categories, suffering for righteousness' sake you, is when you are intentionally pursuing righteousness and you experience suffering as a result of that. So, you, you know, for the sake of our passage today, we're going to be dealing with two main types of suffering. You're going to, uh, what Peter is doing is he's contrasting the suffering that results from sinful or foolish choices with suffering that results from righteous uh, living. And so it's very important for us as a people to make that distinction. And so when we're suffering, there's no virtue just to suffer for the sake of suffering. What kind of suffering are we experiencing? Is it um, you know, the suffering that's result from our own personal choices uh, in, in terms of sinful choices or righteous choices? And really, I mean, you can't, you can't do a whole lot about the sinful oppression of others. You can't really do a whole lot about suffering that results from natural evil. But if there's any kind of category of suffering that you can influence by your actions, it is the suffering that comes from sinful choices or righteous choices. And so really, I mean, when it comes down to it, that's really the primary category that we can influence as Christians. And and we need to think about that. So uh, the first thing that I think you want to say about this issue of suffering as it relates to our passage is this phrase, and, and I've really struggled with trying to word this phrase. So, I, just like suffering <laughs> results from natural evil, I didn't really do a good job with that one. But um, I may not have done a, a good job with this one as well. Uh, but the first thing I think you want to say about uh, suffering f- uh, for righteousness' sake is that most suffering is probably self inflicted. So, that's a understated about as as much as you possibly can, but I think uh, most suffering is probably self-inflicted. Now, uh, uh, Peter starts out the passage here that we're going to be dealing with today with these words. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And what I think he means by that is most suffering is probably self-inflicted. Now, when Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I think what he's doing here is making a statement of general truth, a statement that admits exceptions. Uh, however, so, so I mean, it does no good to, you know, when you're reading Peter's words here, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? It does no good to point out that one time when you were zealous for what is doing what is good and you did suffer as a result of that. That's not the point. He's making a generalization, and I know that our society is increasingly intolerant of any kind of generalizations, uh, but the point there is he's putting forward a generalization. Generally speaking, if you're zealous for what is good, you're going to avoid most suffering that humans experience in this life. So uh, if you act well, things, generally speaking, have a way of turning out well for you. So it's a general world. It's a statement of general truth. Now, uh, now this is the kind of statement that my parents instilled in me from a very early, very early age. If you, if you want your life, Tim, to be pleasant, um, just do what we ask you to do, right? So, I mean, if you, you can make things really hard on yourself, or you can make things very easy on yourself, and, and it all depends on how you interact with us. And, and so, uh, you know, we're going to ask you to do things. And then if you just do the things that we ask you to do, then things will go well for you. And then if you don't do the things that we ask you to do, things will go poorly for you. So my dad, he uh, he had a boat paddle that he named Thunder River because he got it at Six Flags as a souvenir. And um, he, he did some substitute teaching under a guy named Coach Basham. And so that'll be significant in a, in a moment. Um, but um, uh, when he was doing substitute teaching, that was still during the time where you could have corporal punishment at schools. And so this, uh, this guy he was training under, under, his name was Coach Basham, and his spanking philosophy was that you could, you could hit a kid as hard as you can one time and not bruise them. And so uh, my dad really took that to heart. And... Uh, and so he bought a paddle, and he called it Thunder River. And uh, we became very afraid of this paddle. 
because uh, we understood our dad's spanking philosophy. He affectionately communicated that to us on a regular basis. And so it, it really uh, how this functionally worked out is all you would have to do to us to manage our behavior would be to look over at us with a stern voice and say, Thunder River is warming up at home. And it produced the desired effect is my point. So, uh, so now, I mean, if you think about um, the point here today, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Uh, this is a basic lesson that we ought to be teaching our kids from a very early age. Your life can be, you know, you, you can avoid most of the difficult things in life if you just are zealous for doing what is good. Now, of all the thousands of things my parents asked me to do, I, can, I can't really think of any. I'm sure there may have been a few, but I can't really think of any that caused me to violate my conscience. I mean, hey, put your clothes on, get in the car, uh, eat your food. I mean, none of those were significant moral choices that I was making. Uh, but how I responded to any of those would determine how I experienced life, right? And so you, you think about that as it relates to your home. Think about that as it relates to school, going to school. Uh, now, if I... If I wasn't zealous for doing what was good at school, then when I got home, then I would, uh, I, I would experience consequences at school and then consequences at home. Uh, the same thing is true of your work. If you just work hard, do a good job, for the most part, you're going to uh, avoid most suffering that results, uh, that, that can come in life. Now, now, imagine if you fight this principle, what happens? Now, this is why uh, I think it's, we're talking about generality here. I mean, you could fight this principle to varying degrees, right? So, I mean, imagine if you're fighting at every single point in time, anytime anyone who's in a position of authority asks you to do something. Imagine if there's a conflict, if there's disrespect, if you're fighting it, if you're resenting it internally, if you're, um, you, you know, making it difficult on everyone around you. Well, you can imagine that you may experience life in a bit of a different way than the person who's else for doing what is good, right? Uh, now, uh, as I've said, I think that this is just a basic truth of the Christian life that we ought to be uh, teaching to our children at a very young age. Uh, you do well, and you typically avoid most of the unpleasant things that happen in life. Now, do you avoid them all? Absolutely not. But you, you, you can make your life real hard if you, if you uh, violate this principle. And, and what's remarkable is I think all psychologists agree that having a father in your life teaching you, uh, you know, having a father in your life from, uh, who is involved in your life is the single most important factor in keeping kids out of trouble. Why is that the case? Why do you think that's the case? Well, uh, fathers can be a little bit more intimidating than mothers at times. We'll just say that. <laughs> and so I can't tell you how often mom would say to us when we were acting a fool, just wait till your dad gets home, right? Well, there's a there's a point of transition that happens where... Um, mom is not physically strong enough to be intimidating. And so that's one of the reasons why God's put uh, fathers in your life. And that's what we talked about uh, for the past few weeks with uh, husbands living your, your wife with a, or live with your wife in an understanding way, giving honor to the weaker vessel. Uh, and so all these things are relevant here. So, uh, But uh, I think Peter's making just the basic point here that if we are zealous for what is good, then generally speaking, you can escape a lot of suffering. Okay. Zealous for what's good, you can escape a lot of suffering. Now, this is even true. Here, here's the remarkable thing if you, if you consider who's writing this. This is, this is even true. I mean, Peter's the one saying this, but then think about Peter. Peter went to jail for preaching the gospel. Okay, so Peter's saying, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what, doing what is good? But Peter was zealous for doing what was good and was thrown in jail. Peter was zealous for doing what is good, and then he was told by Jesus, that he's going to die by the same manner of death that Christ did. And so we know historically that he was crucified upside down. So here you have an individual who is thrown in prison for preaching the gospel and who, who knows that his life is going to end in being crucified. Uh, people taking him where he doesn't want to go and doing to him what he does not want to be done. Uh, here's an individual who's saying, hey, if you consider the whole of your life, if you consider the way the world works... Uh, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? And so what, you're, what we're dealing with here is you're dealing with a statement of general truth. Uh, for the most part, in life, you can avoid a lot of suffering if you are zealous for what is good. Uh, says Peter, who was thrown in prison and died a martyr's death. 
Now, um, if you try to relate this principle to the contemporary situation, I, I think it's important to try to um, bring this up because I think that this is lost in a lot of the discussions that that are being had as it uh, relates to individuals and their interaction with law enforcement officers. And so if you, you try to relate this to the contemporary situation, if you get pulled over by the police and you act cooperative and respectful instead of belligerent and hostile, things have a way, generally speaking, of going better for you than if you act belligerent and hostile and unhelpful and uh, aggressive, right? So, I mean, just think about this general principle that we're talking about. Uh, you can experience uh, lawful authority in different ways depending on your reaction to lawful authority. So uh, just in terms of, um, I, I mean, I know that these are very um, emotion-provoking uh, situations that you're going to describe, but uh, I think whatever we say, and, and you can't say everything about these kind of situations in one sermon, but as it relates to the passage, we're going to try to be faithful to the passage. Maybe we could say a few things. And so uh, maybe you can try to speak into the, uh, the Alton Sterling situation. Now, that was a situation where uh, Alton Sterling was uh, shot by the cops. And I don't know if you've had a chance to watch that video. But uh, if you can watch a video of an individual, a human created in the image of God being uh, shot by police officers and not have any emotion, there's probably something wrong with you. So let's start with that. Uh, it, you, ought to have, you ought to experience whatever your perspective of that situation. You ought to uh, have a, a, a right and natural grieving that you uh, experience when you see uh, human life uh, tragically killed. Uh, now, in, in saying all that, you also, I think you ought to be able to say that uh, when, when you're dealing with a convicted felon who's carrying a weapon illegally and who's not cooperating with police officers, things don't typically go well in that kind of situation. So regardless of whether or not, just step back for a second, was the, was the shooting justified? Leave that off the table for a second. Here's the issue. Uh, when, you're, when you're talking about this kind of situation, you have an individual who is a convicted felon who's not allowed to have a weapon, who has a weapon. All right, poor choice number one, don't have the weapon, right? Now, uh, poor choice number two, right, if you're going to have the weapon, don't get the cops called on you because you're acting crazy, right? So poor choice number two, uh, you know, if you're going to violate the law by having a weapon in that situation, uh, try not to do something that's going to uh, have the police officers uh, alerted that you're a potential danger, right? So, I mean, think about that. Uh, th- those police officers who shot him did not wake up in the morning and think to themselves, hey, let's go visit Alton Sterling. They didn't think that, right? They didn't ask to be in that situation. No one asked to be in that situation. This was a, a, a situation that um, didn't have to happen. So, you know, Step number one, don't carry the weapon when you're a convicted felon. Step number two, don't uh, get in a situation where the police is going to call or are going to be called. Now, now, assuming all that, step number three, if the police are actually called, just cooperate with what they're saying. Just cooperate with what they're saying. And what do you think is going to happen? He's probably still be alive. He may go to jail for a period of time. He probably doesn't want to go to jail. He's uh, that's probably has something to do with why he's not cooperating with the police officers because the last thing he wants to do is go to jail again. Uh, but here's the issue: uh, even at that point, there is an option to not have this thing escalate, uh, right? And so now, uh, then, you, you know, if you're showing a consistent pattern of not following lawful orders, and, and you know, there's only so many ways that you can take a person who's non-compliant into custody. Uh, you know, then uh, things escalated really quickly. We have the outcome that we have. We have the outcome in this situation that we had. But and like I said, I mean, regardless of whether or not you think that's justified, one one thing is very clear in this situation. Uh, this is not an example of suffering for righteousness' sake. We all need to agree with that. There's plenty of different ways that you can look at this situation, and and. You know, there, there's no reason for him to even put himself in that situation at all, period. Uh, and, and so regardless of the conclusion, whether it was a just killing, an unjust killing, uh, you know, this is there's a there's a significant portion of this situation that's self-inflicted. And we have to say that. And that's what Peter's talking about. Uh, let me give you another example, example of my uh, co-worker. Now, I, I had a co-worker that. Uh, when I was in appliance delivery, and I've, I've done a variety of jobs. But um, he hated the popo, as he called him. And uh, he was a convicted felon for drug possession. 
And so every single time he would see police officers, he would start cussing and swearing at, and just, I hate police officers and just complain after complain after complain. But his entire experience of police officers was, uh, you know, related to this uh, illegal act that he got caught for. And so now he wants nothing to do with them. And, and, and so, but you could see that uh, now, is he suffering every time he sees a police officer? I think he's suffering. But is it for righteousness sake? Or is it self-inflicted? Let me give you another example. I had a, I had a, a classmate early on in high school. Uh, this is examples of what Peter's talking about. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is doing good? All right, if you're zealous for doing what is good, right? Who is there to harm you? Well, if you're a convicted felon, don't carry the weapon, don't have an angry confrontation with the police, do what they tell you. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Coworker. Who is, what are, the cops, they're, you can avoid all the unpleasant interaction with the cops if you don't have drugs. Okay, third example. Friend Roger, I wouldn't say he's a friend. He's just a guy I know that uh, went to school with me. And he was the kind of kid who just caused a lot of problems. You just know him for being a person who's always doing what he's not supposed to do, pushing boundaries, uh, 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 not listening to the authority figures in, in his life. And then one day, he decides to jump on the back of a garbage truck. And why would you do that? I don't know why you would do that. I mean, that, but it seemed like a good idea to him. I can't imagine why I would ever want to jump on the back of a garbage truck. I, I don't understand that at all. But when you say, hey, Roger jumped on the back of a garbage truck, you think to yourself, well, yeah, that's exactly what he would do. He would jump on the back of a garbage truck. Now, how did, how did it end? Well, he fell, unfortunately, he fell underneath the garbage truck and his leg was crushed and it had to get amputated. Okay, so what you're dealing with there is you're dealing with an example of suffering, right? But, I mean, look, don't get on the back of the garbage truck. I don't understand how this is complicated, right? And so here's the issue. Peter's trying to say, who is there to harm you if you're, uh, if you're zealous for what is good? So, you know, I, as much as you feel bad in this situation, you say to yourself, Look, I mean, it, it's an example where you say, hey, I don't want to lose my life, and that's terrible, and I feel really bad for him. And at the same time, it's an object lesson uh, for other people. It's the kind of thing that Solomon would say, don't act like that, and that won't happen, right? Don't do that, and you won't experience bad consequences. Uh, so, um, now, I mean, imagine, or, now, imagine in that situation, Roger jumping on the back of the garbage truck, um, imagine if the garbage truck, I mean, this isn't what happened, but imagine if the garbage truck driver was mad at this troublemaking kid on the back of the garbage truck, and he decided to gun it and drive over top of a speed bump and so that he could shake him off. And then, and then the result of that is that he lost his leg. Now, how do you view it? Is it, a, is it, a, is it a, a, an act of senseless violent, or anger on his part? Yes. Was it an act that's entirely avoidable? I mean, is there foolishness on Roger's part? Yes. All I'm trying to say is that both things can be true at the same time. You can have a totally inappropriate reaction to something, and then at the same time you can have a situation where you're foolishly putting yourself in a situation you don't have to be in, right? And so, I mean, both things can be true. So, you know, if in, in, that, in that hypothetical where I've adjusted it, would Roger be suffering for righteousness' sake? No, I mean, he wouldn't be suffering for righteousness' sake. I mean, don't get on the back of the garbage truck, and you don't have to deal with it, right? So, um, so now, you know, as you think about Peter's point here, and I've, I've belabored point one. Uh, I have eight to go. Um, uh, the, the issue, though, is that generally speaking, if you're zealous for what is good, you can escape a lot of suffering in life. Right? And that's true in terms of sinful issues. It's true in terms of wisdom issues. Was it unwise for Roger to jump on the back? Was it sinful for him to jump on the back of the garbage truck? I don't know. But it's clearly a foolish thing to do, and there's consequences for foolishness too. Right? Now, um, um, now we, we, we do live in a society which I, I think demands that you kind of ignore uh, just issues of culpability. So anytime a person suffers... Uh, I, I think we're, because we uh, consider ourselves compassionate, I think you, you look at situations like this and, and you can't, uh, it's diff- very difficult to think about them 
in a clear and a biblical perspective. Uh, but then one of the things that we want to do is we want to let Peter speak. Right? Peter, who was thrown in jail, Peter, who was suffered a martyr's death. Uh, Peter's, Peter's point here, which is God's point, is who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Okay, so now um, that's the general principle that I think you can take to you can take and you can empir- empirically verify it in your life. If you're zealous for what is good, typically speaking, you're going to avoid a lot of suffering. So be zealous for what is good. Uh, you know, stri- strive to live a, a quiet and a peaceful life. Uh, you know. I think you're going to avoid most of the suffering that's, that uh, that the world has to offer there. So I didn't say all. Uh, uh, but then, you know, you can try as you might to be zealous for what is good. Uh, and there is a category for something called suffering for righteousness sake. And so believers should expect to suffer for righteousness sake. So when you're zealous for what is good, you should expect two things. One, when I'm zealous for what, what is good, I do, I, you know, work hard at do do good at work, work hard, avoid complaining. Uh, do, I should expect to avoid a lot of suffering, but then I also should expect suffering for righteousness' sake. So one of the things we want to say is it is actually possible to suffer for righteousness' sake. That's a possibility. Uh, that's a live option. Now, the prosperity logic, and the prosperity gospel is the gospel that says that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and if you're not, then you have a faith problem. Well, the, pro- the prosperity logic says all suffering is a result of personal sin. So what's the problem with the prosperity logic? Well, it takes point number one and it absolutizes it. Does that make sense? So basically, the prosperity logic is you take point number one and you say, well, uh, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good, period? And then you don't read the next verse, right? Uh, Well, the next verse is, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. So in other words, be zealous for good and then know that in doing so, you will suffer for righteousness sake as well. Uh, but then you do manage to escape a lot of the normal human suffering that's available there. So uh, now if you embrace the prosperity logic, then you're always going to suspect that someone's suffering is a result of their own personal sin. Does that make sense? Uh, so in, in that way, suffering for righteousness sake becomes a hypothetical category that functionally applies to no one. So anytime anything bad happens to someone, then what are you thinking? Well, you must be doing something wrong, right? Uh, well, I mean, that may be true, but it may not be true. So should we consider when we suffer if it's because we're doing something wrong? Absolutely. But you can't assume one way or the other. So there's times when you suffer because of foolish choices, and there's times where you suffer uh, for uh, righteous purposes. Now, um, uh, one of the things to re- re- realize and to remember when you're talking about suffering for righteousness' sake is the Scriptures promise that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, Jesus says in John, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well, right? Uh, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but swords that father against mother, a brother against sisters, man's enemies will be those of his own household. So you think about uh, the expectations we should uh, expect as a Christian. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, do you want to know what the Greek word for all means? It means all. <laughs> so everyone, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecution, be persecuted. Now, um, uh, do, do you want to know a practical way to experience suffering? So suffering for righteousness sake. Let me give you a real practical plan to, uh, to experience it. Let's say that you say, well, I, you know, I don't know that I suffer a whole lot for righteousness sake. Let me give you a real practical plan for how you can experience suffering for righteousness sake. Uh, now, here, here's how you do it. Uh, first, make a commitment to address sin in your family. So not just the big stuff, but the little stuff. And watch what happens. So not just the big stuff, you know, the big stuff that we all think is sinful, but all the things we're talking about in our respectable sin class. So when you see gossip in your family, immediate family, address it immediately. Bring it up. Don't move on. Address it. Address the gossip. When you hear complaints in your family, you say, this is the day that the Lord has made. <laughs> we will rejoice and be glad in it. So when you hear someone complaining in your family, address it. Talk about it. All right, now, what you're going to realize is that, yes, there's probably thousands of... Uh, you're going to be told that you know every single way that you address it is bad, but the issue is there has to be a good way to address it. Okay, So when you see gossip, address it. When you see complaints, address it. When you see anger, talk about it. Address it. Right? All, this, all the respectable sins we talked about. When you see it in your own family, address it. Don't just overlook it. Don't just participate in it. Address it. Now, so you start in your immediate family. See what happens. Um, then move to your extended family. 
and see what happens. So when you and members of your extended family are gossiping with you, what do you do? Well, maybe just start saying good things about the people who they're gossiping about. That may have a have a certain effect. Um, uh, but then you know you, you may confront it and say, "Hey, no, we don't need to talk bad about them." See what happens. All right. So then move to your church family. So here we are, all of us here. Okay. So start with your immediate family. Move your your uh, extended family. Get to your church family. Do the same thing here, right? So, and by that time, it'll be very natural for you to do it because you practice at home. And so, uh, and then you found maybe a hundred ways of bad ways to do it, but then maybe you found a good way in, in, the midst of, in the midst of that. But I promise you, though, you won't be able to get to the church family part before you suffer for righteousness' sake. That's the point. Uh, now, think about work. Do it at work. Okay. Let me give you a silly example, I mean, of this uh, that happened at one of my, one of my jobs. Um, we, um, I think one of the things that, uh, if you think about um, what people talk about at work, primarily if you, if you try to analyze what's actually happening when people are talking at work, uh, almost everything they're saying is a complaint. Almost every single thing they say is a complaint. And so it's just one complaint after the other. And that's how you make conversation. You start complaining about something, you make conversation. That's how you do it, okay? Well, I was working in computer production at this one job, and um, we had a, a military guy come in, and he wanted to get us a little bit more discipline, uh, disciplined in certain ways, and so imagine that. Uh, here was his plan. We were allowed a five-minute break every four hours. And so what he asked the, employ- the employees to do for the OSHA requirements. So, I mean, well, I think it was five for that, but who knows? We only had five. But, uh, but what he asked everyone to do was he asked them to tell them when they were going to take their break, and he was going to mark it down, and then they could go and do it during that time that they told him. So imagine that, impressive, meaning. Uh, so now one of the, the workers, their, interact, their, their response to that was, he's trying to impose military discipline on civilians. And I, and I probably responded simply at that point, but I thought, really? Military discipline asking you when you're going to go to break? I, don't really th- I think it seems pretty reasonable to me uh, to, to tell people when you're going to go on break. But, you, I mean, you can see just in that example... And that's, not, that's a normal example. That happens over and over and over again in our workplace every single day. If you don't go with the tide, oh, yes, that was oppressive. Oh, I can't believe that. Uh, who does he think he possibly is asking us to tell him when we're going to go on our break? Uh, if you don't go along with it, then all of a sudden they don't like you. And so uh, maybe it had something to do with something we'll talk about later, but who knows. But I'm just trying to say that uh, if you want to suffer for righteousness' sake, it's not, it's not all that hard to do, uh, to to to. Uh, to see things happening. Just just don't participate in all of the respectable sins that uh, many uh, people uh, model, right? I mean, just actually treat your employer with respect and look at him as a rightful authority figure over your life and try to speak about him well, and you'll see that people don't like you and that they won't uh, want to talk to you anymore. Uh, so, um, all right, so third point here. Believers will be rewarded for suffering for righteousness' sake. What does the text says, say? Um, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Now, uh, believers will be rewarded for suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, sometimes, I think the particularly the super spiritual among us, uh, to the super spiritual among us, I think it can sound a bit perverse to mention rewards as a motivation for faithful service to God. And so, I think sometimes we try to downplay the rewards that uh, go into. Uh, serving for uh, serving God, and so I think we, you know, there's a knee-jerk reaction that we have at times. We say, "We well, ought to serve Christ because He's worth it, right?" I mean, He's worthy of all worship and worthy of all praise. And so, regardless of whether or not you get anything out of it, shouldn't you just, uh, you know, love God for God, right? And so, I mean, then I think uh, the relational metaphors abound at this point, and you know, you speak about, um, you know. Uh, you know, your kid coming up to you and say, hey, I love you because you give me presents, right? Well, you think, well, it'd be better if you love me because I'm a nice person, I guess. Or uh, love me because, uh, you know, I'm your dad and you love me because of who I am. But uh, if it's just about all the, you love me because you 
do these things for me, then that sounds a little bit maybe imbalanced. But at the same time, I think one of the things we have to realize as you read the scriptures is you don't have to set those things in opposition against each other, right? So can't you, can't you love your parents because they do nice things for you and because you... Uh, uh, can't you love them because of who they are and because they do nice things for you? Can't you do both, right? Uh, and is it, you know... It, I mean, it's not just materialistic and pagan to be... Uh, to serve God because he is going to bless you for doing it. I mean, he puts forward blessings as a reason to serve him. I mean, ultimately, we realize that, uh, you know, we ought to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what happens? All these things will be added unto you, right? Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but serve God because he's just worth it. Is that what it says? What is this? But seek first, or, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven with moth and rust uh do not destroy, and thieves don't break in and steal. And so uh, the Bible unabashedly puts forward rewards as a motivation for serving God. And, and, you know, we probably do well to think more about that in the way that we arrange our affairs and arrange our life. That, hey, there are rewards laid up for us in heaven when we serve God. And, um, you know, it's not the Joel Osteen best life now. It's the best life later, right? Uh, so, But isn't that the point? Don't you critique best life now by saying it's not best life now, it's best life later? Meaning what? There's rewards for faithful service. And so one of the things we realize in suffering for righteousness' sake, that believers will be rewarded for suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, you know, there's rewards here now. You have a good conscience, right? Uh, and then there's rewards later as well that uh, you'll have rewards laid up for you in heaven. And isn't that a good thing? Uh, fourthly, it's sinful to fear suffering for righteousness' sake. So um, even if you should suffer... Uh, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Uh, now, one of the things that you want to say at this point is that the Bible routinely forbids us to fear persecution. Over and over and over again, both Testaments, all across the board, uh, we are told not to be afraid of persecution, not to be afraid of suffering for righteousness' sake. The last appropriate Christian response that we should have uh, in the face of uh, possible suffering for righteousness' sake is fear. Uh, that is uh, completely antithetical to the message of the New Testament, the message of the Old Testament even. Uh, I can't tell you how many passages address over and over and over again this idea of not being afraid of persecution. And yet when we think, when we think about what's happening in our world, and the uh, progressive secularization of our society, what is our most natural and normal first knee-jerk response, if not to be afraid? Well, what does Moses say in Exodus twenty twenty? Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that you may fear him, and uh, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Uh, Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So routinely, throughout the scriptures, what we're told over and over again is it's sinful to fear people. What can people do to us uh, when it comes right down to it? They may take our life, right? So you say, well, what can man do to me? Well, I can think of a few things, Tim, right? Uh, Ask Peter. He was thrown in jail, and he was killed. Right, so that seems like something. Uh, But what's the point? Uh, Why is it irrational as a Christian to fear? Well, if you kill the body, what happens? To live as Christ, to die as gain? What do you want most in life? That's the question. So whenever you, fear, uh, when, whenever you feel fearful at the thought of persecution from others, you want to uh, uh, realize that that fear is alerting you to the presence of, of a desire that's more important than seeing God. Does that make sense? So whenever you fear, fear, uh, whenever you feel fearful... That fear should alert you that you have a desire in your heart that's more important than seeing Jesus, right? So uh, how do you come to quit fearing suffering? Well, I think one of the ways that you come to quit fearing suffering is you come to see that uh, this type of fear is fundamentally worldly. So what is worldliness? What is worldliness? Well, it's being defined by the values and the priorities of this present world, isn't it? Uh, so now, whenever we're afraid at the thought of suffering, we're fundamentally worldly. That's the point. Because what we're saying is that these things are more important to me than Jesus. Right? And what's the goal of the Christian life? It's to come to, make, uh, to, come to see Jesus as the all-surpassing treasure, uh, the most important person in the world. Uh, when you, know, you, you uh, 
to live as Christ, to die as gain. Why? Because if you kill this body, I get to see Christ. And so one of the things we need to realize is that we're uh, instructed repeatedly over and over and over again to not fear suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, now, it's the fear of suffering for righteousness' sake that causes us to shamefully seek to avoid suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, so when you fear suffering, then you can, do a, you can act in a variety of ways uh, that will uh, primarily be designed to keep you from uh, uh, avoiding suffering for righteousness' sake. And so there's ways that we can do this. Uh, and there's several different things I think we want to say about this. So the text says, have no fear of those who may um, harm you Don't be tr- for righteousness' sake, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the goal of life is to honor Christ and not to avoid suffering, primarily, right? Now, if you think about this idea of avoiding suffering, all of us are wired in a certain way to try to avoid suffering. I mean, most people who are thinking rationally in their right mind don't take a hammer and... and uh, Hammer your thumb, right? That would be a bad thing to do. Most people don't do that. It's perfectly fine to try to avoid suffering as much as you possibly can. Indeed, the very beginning of our passage begins with with a with instructions to try to avoid suffering if you can, right? So who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So in other words, you know, try to avoid suffering if you can by being zealous for what is good. Um, that would be one reason why you ought to be zealous for uh, what is good, because it's normal and natural and rational to try to seek to avoid suffering if you can, right? Uh, but then there's a way that you can take that and you can make that the most pressing value and priority in your life. Uh, and when you do that, then what you what you functionally do is you look at situations that are going, going to naturally result in suffering for righteousness sake. And, and instead of doing the right thing, you compromise, right? So, for instance, I just uh, gave us all homework to go home and start confronting uh, all of our family members about complaining and gossiping and and uh, anger and do the same thing with the church family and do the same thing with your immediate family and and don't participate with all that at work. And well, look, I mean, if you're if you're primarily motivated to avoid suffering at all cost, you're not going to follow that. Do you understand? You won't do that. Why? Well, because. People don't like being told that what they're doing is wrong. People don't like being embarrassed. Uh, people don't like having what their actions corrected. Uh, people don't like, uh, you know, we as sinners, we love our sin, don't we? And so I don't want you telling me that my complaining is bad. Don't talk to me. You got your own issues. You worry about your own issues. So I think uh, the point, though, is like, you know, it's shameful to seek to avoid suffering for righteousness sake at all costs. Do what's right. Predominantly, you're going to avoid most suffering, uh, but then you will experience significant suffering for righteousness' sake as well. So uh, as you think about this, I mean, the, the opposite of uh, seeking to avoid suffering for righteousness' sake is to functionally to understand that you have a goal in your life. What is the goal of your life? To honor Christ with everything that you do. So uh, the primary motivating factor for you in life is to honor Christ. And so that's what's going to make you zealous for, doing, for what is good. What's going to make you zealous for what, doing what is good is because uh, you honor Christ who is good. And so know, know that if you're fundamentally driven above all else to honor Christ in your life, you're going to avoid most suffering. Uh, but then you're also going to suffer for righteousness sake. And so one, when you think about this, the goal of life is to honor Christ, not avoid suffering. One of the things that we have to ask is, is this, is this goal reflected in how we handle suffering? So when we do suffer... You know, from whatever category of suffering we're talking about, how do we respond to it? Do we shake our fist at God in an angry way and we say, how, do you, how can you possibly do this? Well, that would reflect that our primary goal in our life is not simply to honor Christ with how we handle suffering, but that we functionally think that, that our goal in life should be to avoid suffering at all costs. Similarly, is this goal reflected in how we pray for ourselves and others? What do we pray for ourselves and others about? Primarily. Is it that they honor Christ with their life? Or is it that they escape all possible suffering that could ever happen to anyone ever? Right? Like, think about the way you pray. Does the way you pray and the way that you handle suffering reflect a proper goal of honoring Christ with your life and not simply just avoiding suffering at all costs? 
uh, or maybe just sometimes the way that we handle suffering and pray reflect more a more fundamental commitment to the prosperity gospel, which basically says, uh, hey, God's goal in my life is to make it easy and to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, and to deliver me from all suffering, period, right? So um, what do we do? All right, we... Instead of shamefully seeking to avoid suffering, we honor Christ with our life. So the, now the question, though, becomes, well, how do we do that? How do you honor Christ with your life? Well, the text says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. So we honor Christ by diligently working to better articulate reasons for why we believe what we believe. Let me say it again. We honor Christ by diligently working to better articulate reasons for why we believe what we believe. We ought to be always uh, Prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So when the Mormons knock on the door and they ask you, uh, and they say to you that we all believe the same thing, and we're you know we're uh, we're all brothers and everything else, and uh, you know just add what we're giving you to to what you're already doing, and you're going to be okay. You know, are you ready to give a answer to them for the hope that's in you? Now, when you think about uh, the way that Peter describes this word hope. Hope for Peter is in many ways synonymous the way Paul uses the word faith. And so when you're always prepared to make a defense to anyone for the hope that's in you, you you're naturally thinking in the language of faith uh, or trust in God. Uh, and, and really, you know, I won't go into all this, but you can, a good parallel passage to study through as you're thinking about the hope that's in you is First Peter 1, 3 this living hope that is laid up for that we started this book with. And so you may do that in your own personal study. But one of the things to realize is hope for Peter is synonymous with faith in Paul. And uh, as Christians, I think we uh, we want to have a reasonable faith. I don't know if that strikes you the wrong way. Um, I, I, but this is particularly what the passage is talking about. I think in the language of the key... King James, it says, always being prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in... Or, or, it says a reason in this one, too, but um, I can't remember what I was going with that. But uh, the point, though, is we ought to strive to have a reason, reasons for our faith. Uh, sometimes we can uh, take this concept of blind faith and, and turn it into a concept of an unreasonable faith. But even in this passage, you see that, you know, appropriate faith has reasons that accompany it as well. And so... Uh, it's always true that our faith is blind and that we trust in realities that we can't see. Everyone does. Unbelievers do. Uh, there's plenty of books. I don't have faith to be an atheist <laughs> that are written along these lines. So we all have a blind faith in that we have to trust in realities that uh, we cannot see. I mean, there's people who believe by faith in evolution, for instance, right? Well, they weren't there. They didn't see what happened. They didn't, you know, they've never seen the transitional form. Uh, so they're trusting in this by faith uh, in absence of sight, just like we are, but we should never, you should never equate, here's the point, you should never equate a blind faith with an unreasonable faith. And, and people regularly attack the scriptures, and we ought to be ready to give a reason for why we believe what we believe. And that reason should not primarily be evidence from science, or it should just be coming from the scripture. I mean, just know the scripture. You want to know how to defend your, defend your faith? Just read the Bible a lot. I mean, think about that as your starting point. How do you how you defend the faith? Well, read the scripture a lot, and you'll be able to do it. Uh, we had a group of Mormon missionaries come. Uh, they've come the past few weeks to our neighborhood, but they came, I think, last week. And they were uh, one of the things they said is the Bible's full of contradictions. And you know what the best answer when someone says that is? Name one. Where's that? So don't don't just say that. Give me one. Give me one. Where's the contradiction? And you know they don't typically have an answer. I mean, all I could get get out of them is one possible contradiction, and it was very clear that uh, they had nothing else. And and it was very clear that the contradiction they gave was uh, was a horrible example of a contradiction. So um, one of the things to realize is that don't be intimidated when people come. <laughs> And are trying to say uh, statements along those lines. Just, you know, give a defense. All right, name one. We'll talk about it. Where is it at? Take me to the take me to contradiction. Let's look at it. Come on. And so, uh, you know, as Christians, we ought to, we honor Christ by diligently working to better articulate reasons for why we believe what we believe. Uh, but then we also honor Christ by uh, articulating this defense with gentleness and humility. So we're instructed to do two things in this passage. 
Uh, instead of shamefully seeking to avoid persecution at all costs, what do you do? Well, you honor Christ by articulating a defense for your faith, and you do it with gentleness and humility. Why? Well, because there's a way that you can offend people because you're offensive, right? There's a way that you can offend someone because you're being offensive, uh, and there's a way that you can offend someone for being prideful. And so every t- so this is back to the drawing board then. So <laughs> um, there's a way that you can suffer for, you, you know, you, you think that... Am I suffering in this moment because of righteousness' sake, or am I uh, suffering in this moment just because I'm an obnoxious jerk, obnoxious, prideful jerk? And so think about how you're communicating to people. Uh, is, your se- uh, is your speech seasoned with salt? Is it giving grace to those who hear? Are you identifying with them as a fellow human? You know, one of the things we ought to realize is that um, there was a time in all of our life where we attacked the Bible, we attacked the Scriptures that we didn't believe uh, the scriptures as we ought to, and it was only a divine miracle uh, that uh, brought us to a point where we had saving faith. And so, uh, you know, I know in my own personal experience, I was running as fast from God as I possibly could, and then one day he picked me up and turned me around, and I don't take credit for that. That was a gracious act on God's part. I don't understand how I can spend years and years of my life rejecting God, wanting nothing to do with him, and then all of a sudden one day I want to read the Bible and obey it. That's strange. Uh, but then if you remember that when you're interacting with people, here's the point. If you remember that when you're interacting with people, then you'll realize that, um, uh, you know, they're not. You only came to know these things recently because God, because of God's grace. And so they need grace too, right? And so you identify with them as you interact with them. You can identify with them that, hey, I'm a fellow sinner. I need grace. I need mercy. I've said things that didn't make sense before. And so as we're, we're um articulating a faith uh, to a hostile world, you ought to remember that uh, you were once hostile too. Now, um, now, one of the things that we've done throughout the, our time here today is we've, we, we've talked about this category of um, suffering for foolish or sinful choices. And then we talked about this category of suffering for righteousness' sake. And so the thoughtful person at this point is going to say, well, how do I know the difference between the two, Right? So how do I know in each particular moment whether or not my suffering is a result of sinful, foolish choices or is it righteousness sake? Because sometimes if we're honest, uh, particularly given the last point that we just made about giving a defense for your faith with gentleness and humility, it's difficult to know, is this an example of suffering for righteousness sake or was I just obnoxious, right? doing the right things in an obnoxious way. It's often hard to know. And so how do you distinguish between suffering for sinful or foolishness and suffering for righteousness' sake? Um, Well, I think the conscience is an imperfect aid to help us in this task. And so if you really think about it, I mean, you have several different aids that are designed to help us. One is, I mean, uh, if you're zealous for what is good, you have to define where is good located. Well, it's in the scriptures. And so I'm always more confident that I'm doing the right thing when I'm following a passage in the Bible. So that's one. Uh, but then I, I know that I'm a sinful and I don't always follow the Bible perfectly in terms of in my actions or my attitudes or everything else. And so thinking about just thinking about a practical situation like I just brought up, trying to confront everyone around you for complaining. Um, is that a good thing? Is it good to be zealous for what is good? Yes, that would be a good thing. So so should we complain? Should we confront people who complain? Absolutely. If you don't, you're sinning. Okay, that's what Matthew 18 says. If you see your brother sin, confront him. Tell him his fault. So step, church discipline, step one. People complain, confront them. We're commanded to do that. Now, we can shamefully seek to avoid that. Sure. Now, but even in trying to do that, the point, though, is even in trying to do that, there's there's righteous ways to do it, and there's unrighteous ways to do it, and it can get confusing, right? It can get confusing. So how do we know? Uh, how do we know if uh, we're even trying to do something good in the right way? <laughs> well, you have a conscience, right? And so what the conscience is, is it's an internal mechanism that God has given us to help us to distinguish between uh, good and evil. And so it's an imperfect me- uh, mechanism, uh, Sometimes you feel bad for things that you shouldn't feel bad for, and you know you have to read the scripture a little more and and train your conscience a little better. Uh, but it's the only mechanism that we have. And so uh, now um, I think you know as you're trying to distinguish between these two things, there's no formulaic answer to give you other than pay attention to your conscience. 
right? Do the right thing no matter what. I mean, it's better to do the right thing. Uh, you know, it's better to confront and, uh, I mean, here's the issue. You can't just, uh, because you're afraid of confronting the complaint, <laughs> uh, because you're afraid of confronting the plaint, uh, complaint in a less than gentle way, then you just never confront until you can figure out the difference. No, you just got to go forward and you got to do it and you got to pray and you got to ask God to help you to do it in a good way. And then you got to learn from the past ways you've done it and ask questions about what is a good way to do it. You just keep on doing it. And, and you know, there will be times when you do the best you possibly can and and you say, I just can't think of a better way to do this. And, and so you're not happy with me, but that's got to be okay. I'm trying with integrity to act the way that I think God wants me to act. And, and you know, as far as I can tell, I have a clear conscience about it. If you can tell me a better way to do it, then I'll ask your forgiveness for the way I've done it. But I can't just disobey God, so you've got to give me a better way. And so um, how, what's your aid in that? Well, your aid is the conscience that God has given you, that he's put in you, that helps you determine right from wrong. Um, now, but, you know, even that, I mean, uh, it's, the ult- it's the only testimony we have. I have a clear conscience in how I approached it, uh, you know, and I could be self-deceived, but one day God will judge me for the secrets of my heart, and for now, all I can do is operate on the basis of the conscience, and so you move forward. And, and so I think we're in a much better position, though, if we're trying to be zealous for what is good uh, and, and being zealous in imperfect ways than just avoiding the subject entirely. So the conscience is an imperfect aid that can help us to distinguish between these two types of suffering. Uh, now, uh, now when you're talking about suffering, and, and you know, we'll just have a few more words here and we'll close up, but when, you, when you're talking about suffering itself, one of the things that you may want to ask is what counts as suffering for righteousness' sake? We've talked a lot about suffering for righteousness' sake. And I've heard a lot of preachers who will go to town on this one and basically say, hey, you think Christians in the West suffer? We don't know anything about suffering, right? When you consider the suffering that many Christians experience overseas. Uh, and so, uh, I honestly, I think Peter could have said exactly what you said at this point in his letter if he thought the way you thought. But the problem, you know, because Peter is, Peter could look at us and he could say, hey, you think you're suffering? Uh you know, Western Christians, uh, were you hung up on a cross upside down? I don't think so. So, you know, all of your suffering is insignificant compared to you get thrown in prison anytime lately, guys, right? Well, I don't think so. I haven't got thrown in prison anytime lately, and I haven't been hung upside down on the cross. But Peter doesn't really seem to take that approach. So notice what he defines as suffering for righteousness' sake. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it seems like for Peter, what he thinks of as suffering is being slandered or reviled. So I think all I'm trying to say is we ought to realize that that counts too. I don't particularly like being slandered or reviled. I don't know about you. Uh, but I, I, I generally speaking try to avoid that if I if I can. Um, now, is that as significant as being hung up on a cross upside down? I don't think so. Uh, but let's not like act like it doesn't count. <laughs> is the point there? Now, um, uh, now if you're careful to follow everything we've said so far, then one of the things to realize is that we ought to ask, well, what can result from suffering for righteousness' sake? Well, when you're slandered and reviled, others may be put to shame. And this is a a similar theme that we've talked about throughout the course of this letter, uh, that when individuals slander you and defile you or uh, revile you, uh, they do so with a bit of a loose hand. And so often uh, you can get slandered and reviled. uh, And they realize deep down, I think, that there's something righteous about what you're doing. And I think we ought to strive as we're even thinking about this subject for the kind of testimony where people will slander us, uh, but then they, they, they know deep down that, hey, um, really I'm the one in the wrong. And that's, that's typically what happens, and that's the way that God has uh, made the world to work. And so as you think about just a lot of news events, uh, you know, you see acts of terrorism, uh, somehow every single act of terrorism is brought back to uh, Christians uh, being homophobic or Islamophobic or whatever else. Well, they could say that all they want to. They could slander us for, you know, and I think that we're talking about being suffering for righteousness sake at this point. Uh, I don't know how an Islamic terrorist killing a group of people in France uh, can somehow be charged to the head of Christians being Islamophobic, but uh, I think you know deep down that that's probably not what's happening. And so... Um, but I think that would be an example of one of the things that we're talking about. 
Uh, and finally, what is, what is the benefit of suffering for righteousness' sake? Well, the text says it's better to suffer for doing good if it, that should be God's will than to suffer for uh, doing evil. So the, the benefit is it's, it's a lot better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And we need to think about the kind of suffering that we experience in this life and ask ourselves, is there any part of it that's self-inflicted? And if it is, let's deal with that part, right? And so life is messy. Uh, things are not always black and white. Uh, you know, in most situations, I think in most situations, if you try to actually seriously distinguish, is this an example of suffering for righteousness sake or suffering for sinful uh, or foolish sake? Uh, you know, a lot of times there's a mixture of both. And what do you do? We well, get rid of the get rid of the mixture, right? New day. So uh, you think through, well, I'm sure that I'm sure that most of the times that I've suffered, it, there's been a mixture there. And so you repent of the part that you have to blame, and then you um, you keep on going, right? And so I, I think we do live in a society which is largely sentimental in our understanding of suffering. We believe that we deserve an easy life, a life devoid of suffering. As a result, when we see individuals who make terrible choices and suffer terrible consequences, I think often in a simplistic way we compare their actions to the consequences and make judgments about justice along uh, these lines. Uh, but but I think one of the things we need to realize is that there are there is suffering for righteousness' sake. There is suffering for foolishness' sake, and and we live in a we live in a difficult world. And, and of all people, we ought to be uh, the types of individuals who are are zealous for doing what is good, knowing that God sometimes will uh, use that as a means of suffering, and sometimes He'll use that as a means of avoiding suffering. And so it's my prayer for our church here today that uh, we, we suffer well and we suffer for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. And so we ought to be diligent to be praying, uh, praying along these lines for ourselves, for our family, and for our world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the chance we have to study your scriptures. Lord, we thank you for uh, what you've done for us, Lord. We know that you suffered. If there's any example of an innocent person who suffered for completely in an innocent way it's jesus christ on the cross for our behalf and we we thank you for that we know that without that we would uh, we would be lost and damned to hell forever and so we thank you for what you've done for us i pray that you identify areas in our life where we're suffering for foolishness sake and help us to repent of those and and to turn from those lord and i pray that you spur us on to a greater commitment and, and, and zealousness for what is good and for what is right so that we may share with you in suffering for righteousness' sake. We thank you for all you do. In your son's name I pray. Amen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.